This is the last coffee house. How's everybody doing? There is a blind spot in modern America. Suffering is color-coded. In 2016, J.D. Vance published Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. It reached the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and actually recently, this year, Netflix made a movie about it, which we talked about, that is starring Glenn Close and Amy Adams, and a chubby-faced guy I hadn't seen before. So I hadn't read the book, but now finally have, and it turns out it's mostly about his family and a little bit about America. Now, it is a bit of a controversy. In 2016, it was a big deal. Of course, everything changed in late 2016. There was some outrage about it back in the day, but people were mostly abuzz, and then the movie comes out, and there was kind of a, a serious backlash related to it. So, of course, as always, we will go through the contents, we'll do a little analysis, and then we are going to talk some big picture stuff. So what are the content, contents, I can't even pronounce the word contents, jeez, am I drunk. What are the contents of this book? Vance grew up in the city of Middletown, Ohio, which is the place he moved to with his family, who had left, how do you pronounce this county? Breathe it? Breathe him, breath it? County? Kentucky? But they were Appalachian Hill people, or what we'd call hillbillies. I'm not sure if that's a pejorative nowadays. So his family comes from this area, and this was a community that had a lot of homogeneity when it came to the socioeconomic roots of this particular place. He starts with his childhood and talks about how important the social and economic, the cultural, all those things were kind of intertwined in this particular area. So, for instance, there was a car manufacturer that was there, or a steel manufacturer that made steel for cars, and people who worked there, it was a major employer in the area. And people who worked there would be very proud of that fact. There were things that were shared culturally, like when a funeral procession drove through the area, or an, an area, down a street, then everybody would stop and stand up and, and pay homage to that funeral procession. And this was something that had a very big impact on him as a child. Now, his father was distant for most of his childhood, although he would come back later in life, or they would at least reconnect later in life. So he mostly spent time with his mom at first, and he had a sister, and he and his sister were very close, but his mother would jump from guy to guy, which would mean different living situations as they were growing up. So there's a lot of moving around. But in the midst of this, he did have his grandparents, and this was his mother's mother and father. Papa and Mama, they were called in the parlance, the local parlance. But they were an important kernel of stability that will come into play multiple times throughout. And as you'll see, if you watch the movie, Mama in particular, he goes into detail about how their relationships worked and when they fought and how they fought and what they fought about and that kind of thing, which I found really interesting. And But Mama herself, it's no wonder they made a movie out of it. She's a f just a fantastic character and a very interesting person. She's apparently a maniac, a hilarious maniac. She would threaten to kill people. She toted a shotgun and she cursed up a storm. She would call him all sorts of terrible names and was loyal to a fault when it came to family. Often politically contradictory, there were just a lot of things going on with this person, but she was kind of the rock that allowed him to find some mooring in, in the storm of this decaying community. 
eventually at a certain point when he was a kid he there was this one instance where he was driving with his mom and he had said something or done something that really pissed her off and she just went off on him and started hitting him he fled out of the car and ran to a house and she the person at the house in the house let him in to protect him and his mom broke the door down and uh was arrested and all sorts of stuff so at a certain point, he ends up living with his grandmother, and it was at this point, you know, he's not being moved around between different guys once he hits this point, and now he stops acting up and getting into trouble and getting bad grades. His mama forces him and tells him, you need to work hard, you need to get these grades up. She takes an interest in this, and his mother was, at a certain point, I think she was addicted to hard drugs, and then eventually, she worked as a nurse. Uh, then eventually, she became addicted to painkillers, prescription drugs. I'm not sure if they're just painkillers, but prescription drugs in general. And this would have a significant impact on her life, the trajectory of her life, her relationships, and whether she could keep a job just in general. So anyway, but when he moves in with Mamma, then he gets this kind of structure, even though she's a maniac. He gets this structure because it's just her and him. They help each other out. They talk all the time. They're very supportive of each other. And that's what kind of propels him to the next phase of his life. And he has absolutely loved this woman. So ultimately, he ends up joining the Marines, and this is a big important aspect of his development where he learned structure and hard work, waking up at 5 a.m. and doing PT and having the commitment to making yourself as great as humanly possible and being committed to something else that's beyond yourself, all the while staying in touch with his mamma, who was very incensed that they would yell at him and, and treat him poorly <laughs> uh, when he was going through this training. Eventually, he gets to Yale Law. Uh, he went to Ohio State, right? And then he goes to Yale Law, and that's where he meets his wife. And while at Yale, he meets with a bunch of different, you know, very powerful, high-class law firms, and he realizes in the midst of all of these people who are very different from him and the people that he comes from, you know, the fact was that he was the only person, I think, in his, his immediate family, at least, that went to college, period. He alone went to an Ivy League school. But he noticed that this is a completely different world and the way that they function and what they talk about and how they eat. All of these different... I remember him talking about how he took them to Cracker Barrel, some of his friends from Yale, and they were just disgusted <laughs> with the food on offer there. So all these different things, he sees these contrasts, and it has this effect of reinvigorating his commitment to his home, but also realizing that he needed to move on from it. So there, there's this kind of central conflict in that way. Uh, things like he would feel this anger, things that he feel, felt like he got over, and I can absolutely attest to this. I had a very similar kind of background and situation to this guy. You hold these things in there, even though you feel like you've overcome them, there's something that you have to work out over time and when you have a, a great partner to be able to do that with then it can be very helpful but his wife Usha is somebody he met at Yale and she was somebody who didn't come from the same background you know she came from the Yale typical background and she was able to be that force that made him realize what was going on that he had internalized so much of what his mother was and what all the people around Appalachian the Appalachian people were and so he had to learn ways to be able to cope with those kind of instincts but anyway at Yale he actually had uh, his advisor was Amy Chua and I think we read one of her books uh, it was a terrible book but we read one of those books but he learned a lot of things about how uh, the wealthy, you know, network and the way that they choose what kinds of things they should or should not be doing. 
And so he gets through Yale. Uh, there, more stuff comes up with his family that he has to come back and and assist with. And he has this struggle about how he's going to help his mom. You know how to enable her to try to do better, but not just give her money so that she could feed this addiction and com- continue to engage in these very destructive acts. So in the midst of all this, he also talks about sociological factors that impact this particular area. And there are a lot of uh, great ideas in this particular section, talking about adverse childhood experiences and all the ones that he and his sister had experienced. I think they had like six and se- six or seven out of ten of these that are identified as very important ones, whereas Usha and his, a lot of his Yale friends had zero out of ten when it came to what happened within the family and, and having to move and not have having two parents and all, all sorts of different things that are adverse childhood experiences and abuse and, and that sort of thing. That those have dramatic impacts. They can have dramatic impacts on people as they grow and become adults. And then that creates this cycle of experiencing and inflicting these adverse childhood experiences. And uh, I think he mentioned, you know, it's mostly Scotch-Irish or Scots-Irish in Appalachia. That's the pedigree. And that ties, of course, directly to things that were said by Thomas Sowell in that book that we were Black Rednecks and White Liberals, where he talked about that the roots of a lot of the very dangerous and bad practices, you know, the violence and the honor code, the honor culture, which was in Appalachia as well, this honor code, that there's this hillbilly honor code that you have to, if somebody offends your mother, or something like that. You have to physically assault them, that kind of thing. I mean, that was something I grew up with, for sure. I was nowhere near this area. (laughs) But it's something that was inherited from the Scots-Irish when they came down. These are practices, cultural practices, that were amplified in the southern and this area of the United States, and then inherited by poor whites and poor blacks in these areas. And poor blacks migrated up north into places like Chicago and Detroit, and then they, they took these cultural practices with them, and then you have the you know increased criminality, these honor codes, and these poor behaviors when it came to employment, and these are the same kinds of things that the Appalachians, that they engage in, that they inherited from uh, another culture. So, see all this tying in of where all this stuff comes from. He brings up concepts like learned helplessness, which is something that is being just amplified on a grand scale now, a psychological ailment of learned helplessness that says that none of your decisions mean anything. They don't do anything. So therefore, you don't need to worry about making decisions, good or bad. And this is something that can have an extremely detrimental effect. And every ounce of the kind of discussion over the past four years, and even beyond that, about how there are just classes, you know, groups of victims, that you have victimhood status no matter what you do, that's inculcating this learned helplessness. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's a conspiracy to make sure that they're helpless so that they will vote to give certain parties more power so that they can do this sort of stuff. But whether they intend to or not, that's what they are vitiating the communities of people who are already struggling with is this learned helplessness. It's a psychological problem that we should be ameliorating, that we shouldn't be exporting it onto, en masse onto these populations. Um, 
But anyway, so other practices like unhealthy eating, you know, we talked about fried bologna sandwiches. I remember eating those (laughs) Um, and having a temper and these kinds of practices that you have to learn to cope with. You know, if you can't unlearn them, you at least have to learn coping mechanisms. And the fact that everybody had similar experiences in this area and he goes into some political factors that impact it. You know, obviously when uh, plants leave, you know, like the steel plant that closes down and goes over to another country, then suddenly you have a, a large group of people who don't have employment. And even recently in New York, in AOC's district, when she challenged the building of an Amazon plant there, and so they lost 25,000 jobs that were going to be transported to a poor area. Those things can have dramatic impacts on on the the way people can take care of themselves in, in those kinds of areas. So He talks about specifically uh, one factor was payday lending. So there were these bills that were coming out talking about how payday lending was predatory and because they had astronomical rates and uh, so they should be, you know, better regulated or shut down or whatever. So he talked about an experience himself where he wasn't able to get his check, but he needed to pay rent. So he went to a payday lender to get this. I remember my mom using these when I was a kid. And he was able to pay the rent and avoid late fees because he was able to do this, you know, for a few dollars. You know, it's it's only for a few days. So it's an astronomical rate, but you're only paying it for a few days, you know, a fraction of what the yearly rate would be. So he just says that there are, while you might think that you're helping, and this could be the story of the maturing American experiment, is that you might think that you're helping, but you need to look at what actually happens, not what you feel like is going to happen or what you feel like is the moral thing to do. So there are a number of positives that come out of it that he takes out of his experiences and the positives that he exports to the rest of us via the book are things like family and country over everything, even a murderous (laughs) willingness defense of family that was part of their culture. There was a time where he actually, with his mother and she was arrested, then he ended up lying to the judge because he was afraid of what would happen to the family as a result. The idea of a person from the outside reeling him in, him and his sister, both married people who are outside of this, uh, the Appalachian area. So that was a method of being able to get outside of yourself and outside of that insulated community and being able to see what destructive habits you had and get around those things. Uh, and then finally, the big theme that is a through line uh, from beginning to end is about the American dream. But not just you need to work hard personally, you need to work on your own faults and all that. He had a lot of help and he was very clear about that. that there, there were a lot of things that he was lucky to be able to have those things. And he acknowledges them, especially having that, that rock at the center uh, with his, his mamma. So a lot of important things. Now, when it comes to the analysis, uh, this is a memoir, so it's one guy's story. Obviously, we talk about it. It's it's anecdotal if you want to talk about it as evidence of something or some kind of broad ideas. And so when it comes to, I mean, while I, as a lawyer, am incredibly well-informed, and you should listen to everything I say, of course, but this lawyer doesn't necessarily have the expertise to be able to interpret policy or apply policy or interpret statistics in the proper way, all that sort of thing. So you have to take all that sort of thing with a, a grain of salt. There's going to be likely skewing when it comes to his direct experiences of this versus what the data actually show. Of course, we have to be very suspicious of experts in what the data supposedly show, especially nowadays when they have a political dog in any given empirical question.
But big picture wise, and this is something that's very concerning development wise in in this particular country, is that suffering seems to be color coded in contemporary America. That if you're the wrong color, uh, you can't be suffering. Of course, this book is specifically about the suffering in this particular pocket of a particular kind of people. And it doesn't change the fact, you know, no matter how much you want to talk about academic sociological theories about X or Y, it doesn't change the suffering here. It doesn't change the fact that if you have broken homes with addict mothers, that it's going to have a severe impact on a childhood development, um, even whether the adults themselves are be able to get a handle on what's going on. The reality is, regardless of color, failing communities suffer from the same ailments and would benefit from the same interventions. Policies that encourage intact families and stable businesses, those things are paramount. You need a broad foundation from which to build healthy children as they're coming up. So importantly, no matter what moral value you believe your policies to have, you have to ask what behavior is being incentivized. And policy-wise, that's not something that happens a lot because a lot of political actors, number one, they have a short attention span because they only have you know a few years, a couple years before they have to get reelected again. So they have to do things that look good in the short term. But number two, especially in our political culture, it's really easy to just blame the other side for all the problems that occur. So a lot of times you just don't have the responsibility adhering to the people who engage in bad policy practices, you know, just to look good or something like that. So like I said, intact families, stable businesses, these are the most extremely important things. That's what the data definitely overwhelmingly suggests. That those are the important things that need to be encouraged and incentivized when it comes to the long-term development of, of children and communities. That's what you need to look at. So anyway, that's that's big picture wise. Uh, that was uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Did I even say that? I said the title at some point. The movie tended to downplay uh, a lot of the broader ideas that were in the book. I think the movie had a bunch of voiceover, didn't it? It more kind of focused on the family drama aspect, but still did keep the through line of the, you know, hard work and individual and American dream kind of thing. But it did really downplay. I would have loved to see more textured approach where you had a lot of the other people like his uncles and and a lot of the other people that he brings up to have more characters that really show this is the community. This is how they act. This is how they experience things and what they think. I think that would have been a more robust experience to have in the movie uh, rather than having it be more just kind of direct family drama. But overall, I mean, it was uh, it was an enjoyable book. And obviously I see because we have this kind of weird persecution thing going on right now that if anything even smacks of the opposing political side that you have to crucify it. But this particular book, it does kind of follow a... It balances itself out, just like the characters do. You know, he talks about how there are no villains in his story. But it balances itself out politically where... And that's not necessarily correct. That's not necessarily the best thing to do. I think one side is more right than the other one. But the book itself isn't so focused on being, you know, conservative, even though it talks about how, you know, American dream, personal responsibility, family values, family first, religion, all that sort of stuff. It is more focused on, okay, these are the things that happen. These are what I think these people are thinking and what's going on with them and what would benefit them and what has been a detriment to them and all of that. I don't think it has too much of an agenda in, in that area. So it's, it's weird to have this kind of backlash, especially to the movie, which is kind of a more straightforward family drama. It doesn't even have much of a political stance. But to have this, uh, there's a really disparate backlash to anything that even kind of smacks of 
oh no, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and American Dream and all that sort of thing. So anyway, I think I've been going on about this for long enough. It's it's worth reading for sure. Got a lot of good stuff in it. It's really very simply written. It doesn't have big flourishes of of prose or anything like that. It's not especially poetic. It's detailed. It goes through what it needs to go through. It's establishing what happened, and it's very plainly written so that it's accessible. And that can be really refreshing. You know, it was just a really easy one to sit down and read. So anyway, uh, that that was that. Uh, this is the last coffee house. I'm I'm glad you listened. I hope all is well, and I'll see you on the next one. 